Welcome everyone to our LIBOR litigation focused uh, session. Um, I'm Caroline Hunty-Yates. I'm joined today by Lizzie Williams and Doug Robinson. We are all contentious regulatory and litigation specialists and want to bring to you our wealth of experience from advising clients on litigation and conduct risk from LIBOR transition over the past two years. Now, some of you may already be familiar with our work on conduct risk. Uh, Sims and Simmons and Lizzie and myself both authored uh, the two uh, papers that were published by AFME on conduct risk associated with uh, LIBOR transition. So I think it'll be an interesting session. Now, the title we've given to this session, we borrowed from the 2019 quote from the New York Fed General Counsel, who said that LIBOR transition was a DEFCON 1 litigation event, if ever he'd seen one. Now, obviously, we're two and a half years and a global pandemic later, and I suspect I'm going to try and... Uh, uh, have a slightly more cautious uh, note in here, although we're certainly not saying um, that it's not going to be uh, a litigation um, tricky time. The thing is, it's the scale of the transition that I think is causing everybody uh, concern about the amount of fallout uh, that there might be. And this was brought to life for me recently by an employment lawyer talking about uh, all the changes to employment contracts that have happened as we come back to work after COVID. And his point was, if I have 50,000 employees, whilst I might make 95% of them happy with what is going on, I'm still left with 2,500 disgruntled employees. And that's quite a lot of individual people to have to deal with. So I suppose at this stage, what we're really trying to help people with is kind of knowing who your disgruntled counterparties are likely to be, what they're likely to be disgruntled about, and what you should be doing now. But I think well, where the best place to start is really slightly coming at this from the other end and thinking about loss. And Doug, can I pass over to you to share your thoughts on why identifying potential loss scenarios is going to be key in terms of that early identification of risk areas? Yes, well, I, I think um, one of the quickest ways for parties to identify where the litigation risk may lie will be to understand where losses may arise for their counterparties or clients. And that really reflects the fact that without a loss, there is generally going to be no basis for litigation to take place. And a loss could arise where the rate that your client is on today or, or post-transition is worse than, than the rate they could plausibly say they should alternatively have been on. And to give some examples of what that might look like, your client could say, well, I'm on synthetic LIBOR, but you should have transitioned me to Sonia plus CAS, or you transitioned me, but I would have been better off on synthetic LIBOR, or uh, you've used forward-looking CAS uh, rather than the five-year historical median, or I'm on the Bank of England base rate, but actually, I think I've been better off on Sonia plus CAS. And you can add into that all of the different currencies and different rates that are available, and you, you get the picture in terms of the different arguments. But each of those only really makes sense if the desired rate uh, that your client is uh, saying they should be on is sufficiently different from the rates they are on, that there's a meaningful economic difference. Um, and some people have questioned whether there could ever be enough of a divergence between the rates that really there's any any sensible basis for litigating and making it worthwhile, in other words. And whether there will be or not is, I think, ultimately an open question. It's only going to become clear over time once we see how rates do move. 
a further possibility, I suppose, is that if there were to be a, a more widespread economic downturn and financial stress for your clients, then a client may wish to exit a contract um, they have entered, not because of transition, but instead using transition as a, a pretext or a route to trying to release themselves from that obligation, which they no longer wish to have. But in either scenario, um, really, there's, there's an, an element to which uh, what happens next is outside our collective control and depends on uh, the economy and how rates move uh, over the following years. Thanks, Doug. And, and this is probably, I suppose, a sensible moment to remind people that if we sort of look at litigation risk through the client categorization lens, you know, we've always been saying we're more concerned about the less sophisticated end of the market. So your less sophisticated SMEs, your high net worth and any retail clients. But we're not saying that there isn't going to be a, a, an amount of dispute and litigation between market counterparties. And the problem, I suppose, with that is although we're expecting it to be less frequent, those are, of course, going to be the bigger disputes where the loss is actually going to be more um, sizable. Now, one of the things we'd all wondered is, might there be some sort of legis legislative solution that either is going to remove the transition problem uh, entirely or reduce or perhaps even remove the litigation risk arising from it? Now, we've just had the UK contract continuity bill and the FCA set out its position on how regulated firms should use it. So, so Lizzie, perhaps I can turn to you to walk us through that. Yes, thanks, Caroline. So this has been a real hot topic with, with clients, certainly over the last six weeks in particular. It was a very eagerly anticipated piece of legislation. And unpicking it to understand exactly what impact it has on mitigation risk is something that many have been uh, interested in. So we'll just spend a couple of minutes today running through that. The critical benchmarks references at Administrators Liability Bill as its full title is, it effectively enables continuity of contract for the legacy contracts that continue to reference LIBOR, regardless of any changes that the FCA may make to the methodology for calculating the benchmark. Now, importantly, it's not to be used for any new contracts. This is just for historical contracts. The bill basically provides uh, for explicit contractual certainty by inserting two new articles into the benchmark regulation. And those articles make it clear how references to critical benchmarks such as LIBOR should be interpreted in contracts where the FCA has imposed a synthetic methodology. Now, one point to note at the outset is that the contract doesn't have to specifically specify LIBOR to be caught. Um, HMT were at pains to flag that the legislation covers contracts that describe the benchmark as well as ones that reference it. And it also covers things that don't accurately re reference it, such as you know, references to the rate produced by the uh, British Bankers Association, which is out of date, but is understood to clearly mean uh, LIBOR in this context. Now, in terms of timing of the bill, um, it's unclear uh, at, at the moment. What we know is it's currently sitting with the House of Lords. Uh, the first reading took place on the 8th of September and the second will in fact take place tomorrow. But everyone is aware of the need to get it into the statute books by the end of the year and we understand it's being expedited on, on that basis. 
Now, the bill aims to directly address any legal certainty that a contract which referred to the market set rate of LIBOR would be construed as a matter of English law as referring to the synthetic version of LIBOR. And the bill confirms that references to LIBOR should be treated as references to synthetic LIBOR once it's been designated as that all-important Article 23A benchmark by the FCA and the new synthetic LIBOR's methodology has kicked in. So, in other words, it automatically switches the interest rate payable under the contract to synthetic LIBOR. So, for contracts that include fallbacks that are triggered by cessation of LIBOR, and importantly, these aren't the ones that may have been negotiated by parties as part of LIBOR transition. These are historical fallbacks. These are not now going to be triggered because LIBOR as such won't cease, but it will be unrepresentative. And so contracts with fallbacks triggered by unrepresentativeness will continue to fall back to them. So what is synthetic LIBOR? In a nutshell, whilst most of the LIBOR settings will stop being published after the end of this year, one, three and six month sterling LIBOR and yen settings will be published under the synthetic methodology, effectively using term RFRs and the ISTA five-year historic median credit adjustment spread that is published for the purposes of ISTA's eyeball fallbacks for those six um, LIBOR settings. So one point that I also really want to make clear here is that, um, and it's one that many have been bringing up um, in questions to us on mitigation risk, is that whilst the bill addresses the question of contractual continuity, it doesn't provide express protection from claims, which some were hoping for, and certainly those that were looking to the ARC in the US as an example. Now, a few points uh, on this, which I think uh, one should bear in mind. One, the contractual continuity uh, bill only applies to UK law governed contracts, uh, but it doesn't matter where the parties are if the contract is, say, governed by English law. The second point is it serves to avoid a tough legacy crisis in that those contracts that are unable to transition and don't have a functioning fallback won't effectively fall off the edge of a cliff, as it were, when LIBOR is designated as that Article 23A benchmark by the FCA, then resulting obviously in the general prohibition on the use of LIBOR. The third point is that it's hoped and it certainly was envisaged that the bill would, would serve to, to mitigate the risks of claims based on arguments like frustration and force majeure, which I won't go into for the purposes of our summary today. Um, but suffice it to say, the contract is treated for all purposes through the bill as though it always referenced synthetic LIBOR, so it has formal retrospective effect. The fourth point is that given that there's no legislative safe harbour, so that express protection from claims, as I mentioned, um, two particular uh, risks exist. So one is that a contentious counterparty or class of contentious counterparties, as Doug mentioned, could still bring a claim, no matter how speculative, in order to bargain their way out of position that they may consider to be less favourable um, under the transition rate than under a comparable alternative rate. That still remains the case. The second risk, I think, is that oddly, and I find this somewhat illogical to think through, but, but it is the case, the legislation only protects you where you don't or rather are unable to transition. And it doesn't provide you with any protection where parties have affected transition. So you're going to have to mitigate your risks when affecting transition accordingly. So the key risk from all of this is that firms uh, 
take their foot off the gas, as it were, and, and transition slowed. But synthetic LIBOR is only intended to be a temporary measure. It's not going to be around forever. We currently only have it for a year. And currently, it seems logical to assume that synthetic LIBOR plus CAS is going to be higher than SONIA plus CAS. So there must be a risk of claims from counterparties who allege that insufficient steps have been taken to actively transition them prior to the end of this year. So I'll finish there on this summary just to say that all in all, there are lots of reasons to continue to be aware of and to mitigate the litigation risks in LIBOR transition, despite the, the existence of this very welcome bill. Thanks, Lizzie. I can't work out why, but that somehow sounds like good news in a bad news wrapper. But, um, but there we go. Um, I suppose the question in other people's minds may be, why does all of this matter now? I haven't even finished my transition. Um, there really are a lot of other things uh, to be focusing on. So, Doug, can I turn back to you? Because I think there are a few other thoughts it's worth just sharing with everybody on this. Y yes, of course. So, I think it seems highly likely that <clears throat> this matters because there will probably be LIBOR-related litigation in future, but exactly what that will look like really very much remains to be seen. So there's going to be an element of being reactive to claims as and when they arise, and in, in managing those claims, taking steps to avoid making a bad situation worse. There probably won't be an avalanche of claims overnight, and what we'll see is most likely a handful of complaints, and things will develop from there. And so in dealing with those first few complaints, it's going to be important to avoid uh, creating unhelpful precedents or adopting an inconsistent approach that could then hurt you further down the line, for example, on a, on a TCF basis. And in terms of the wider strategy, it's probably going to be helpful to project forward and think about how your handling of an initial complaint may impact upon a body of claims that could potentially arise in the future. Um, if your client has a loss, it may be helpful to think about steps you could take now to prevent that loss becoming bigger. And you may also want to be plugged into what the wider market is doing since steps taken by one firm, such as you know, pre pressing a point and taking it to court, could impact upon you and the rest of the market. Um, and there'll also be some of the more ordinary practical points to think about when, when handling complaints, such as taking care not to say unhelpful things in emails that could be disclosable uh, and taking care to maintain privilege over your communications. So to give some examples of what that could look like, um, things that are unhelpful, uh, comments that are unhelpful made in emails could be disclosed and may colour how a judge views you if there's later uh, lit uh, litigation relating to that complaint. Um, whilst legal advice will generally be privileged, privilege can still be lost if confidentiality is lost. Um, communications you have with lawyers about complaints won't always be privileged. You need to actually have, uh, when making the communication, the dominant purpose of seeking legal advice. And finally, while at a later stage when uh, litigation is pending or on foot, you may be able to rely on the, the wider form of privilege, litigation privilege, there's often an, an initial stage where that's not available because things haven't progressed quite far enough for litigation to be reasonably contemplated. And therefore, there's still a risk that things you say get disclosed and can harm you in litigation. 
Thanks, Doug. Uh, it is always good to get a reminder of uh, the intricacies of uh, privilege. Um, so I think having set the scene, what we want to move on to now is to run through our top five litigation risks that we can see in the market uh, right now. Um, our focus at this stage is, is, is things that tend to be focusing and, and hitting more on the loans and derivatives side. Um, Lizzie will separately pick up uh, some points on securitizations. Um, so our top five, I'm going to start with number one, which is um, the choice of the credit adjustment spread. And now the historic uh, median as recommended by the RFR working group and the forward looking methodology are going to give um, different results. And we know that there is more than one way of calculating the forward looking uh, methodology. And it, it, it's really that query around the different results and are, are people seeing um, different client categorizations pushing for one um, as a replacement for the other that is causing a number of questions at the moment and whether there is regulatory risk coming from that. Um, obviously, treating customers fairly doesn't mean that you have to treat them identically, but you do want to be able to objectively justify the differences and show appropriate governance um, around those, uh, those decisions. So the second key risk of our five is really around hedged loans. Now, I think everyone knew this was going to be one of the more tricky areas um, of transition. Um, we weren't helped by the fact that some of the industry conventions were um, uh, not brought uh, together in a, in a harmonized way. Um, but it does lead to the question of, do you actually need to have a perfectly hedged um, loan? Um, obviously, if you do, then there is then the question of have you actually um, delivered it? Um, but I do think that is still going to be uh, one of the trickier areas. Um, Doug, do you want us to talk uh, to um, the third and the fourth of our, of our top five litigation risks? Yes. Um, well, the third risk area is the, the use of contractual fallbacks, and in particular, their use where they might not be as clear as one would hope. And wherever there's ambiguity in a contract, there's going to be some scope for your uh, counterparty to challenge your interpretation of it and claim that it's wrong. And that situation could arise where the the fallback that's in your contract doesn't have a trigger, which is covered by the bill, uh, which Lizzie has already described, or your contract is not a UK contract. And therefore, again, the, the fallbacks come into play. And um, it's going to give rise to a question of contractual interpretation. And whilst the approach the English courts take to uh, interpretation is relatively settled, there are still some questions the court will ask itself um, when interpreting a contract which can give rise to challenges and make it harder to predict. So an example of that would be even where the natural and ordinary meaning of the words in the clause appear fairly straightforward, the court can still take account of the facts and circumstances um, in the minds of the parties at the time they executed the contract. Uh, and so you can see that that introduces some uncertainty as to where the court will come out um, and therefore makes it quite hard often to predict uh, quite what the outcome will be were you to, to litigate. So that's the third risk area. The fourth risk area is another one that's rooted in non-transitioned contracts and it's the use of contractual discretions, which will often appear in contracts um, where there's going to be some discretion determining precisely what some of the consequences of cessation will be. And from an English law perspective, the requirements around the exercise of discretion are, are fairly clear. The process by which your decision is made and the decision itself must be made rationally 
in good faith and in a way that is consistent with the overall contractual purpose, and it won't be uh, appropriate to take into account irrelevant considerations. So that's relatively plain, but what it really brings light brings to light, I think, is the paramount importance of record keeping because a dispute will probably take place sometime after the decision in question is made. And ultimately, it's going to be a case of proving what considerations were taken into account at the time. And of course, some decisions have to be made uh, very quickly uh, in, in fraught circumstances, and the court can take that into account. But ultimately, you still got to be able to show that the process and the decision reached were sensible and sound ones. Thanks, Doug. And that probably brings us to our fifth and final um, top litigation risk, which is really looking at pricing differences that are emerging between new and transition businesses, uh, business, and whether that is actually, um, again, okay. Um, and again, this one is often looked at through the lens of what is the governance that has gone round it and has it been monitored and uh, and considered at appropriately senior level? Um, we're not saying that the, all pricing has to be the same, but it is just, has it been looked at in an appropriate way? Now, we, before we move on to the few final points, I do want to open um, a poll to get a sense from you which of our top five litigation risks you're most concerned about, and I'm not limiting you to uh, one vote here. Um, so we've set them out on the screen. Um, you've got uh, the choice of casts, hedged loans, interpretation of fallback clauses, um, which I think at the moment is getting my vote, um, exercise of contractual discretion and pricing differences between new and transition business. Now, whilst everyone's um, hopefully popping their answers into the poll tab, Lizzie, can you just share some thoughts from a securitization perspective? Absolutely. So again, this is an area we've focused on loans and derivatives for this talk, but there, there are many other areas that obviously are, are affected by libel transition. And one of those areas that we've been particularly focused on is in relation to securitizations and other uh, complex structures. Now, one of the most significant problems certainly that I've encountered with these uh, types of uh, securitization structures is the lack of a clear decision maker. So nobody is holding the very clear obligation to be in charge of an initial at libel transition. Um, in addition, if you are, let's say, uh, you know, an issuer on these uh, transactions, you may indeed also hold other roles that may be relevant. Um, you may have delegated uh, a lot of your uh, role to some sort of um, services provider or agent. So trying to identify and unpick from the contractual documentation as a starting point what your role is is going to be really important. In addition to that, I think there are two other uh, aspects you also need to consider, which is what are your statutory or fiduciary duties, certainly from an English law perspective? And in addition to that, what are your regulatory duties? So again, going back to the FCA's um, milestones and expectations of regulated firms. Now, there are risks arising from failing to implement alternative basis rates, but also, in particular, the method of implementation. So, how did you go about affecting that? Now, with a lot of these structures, consent solicitation is usually the most um, effective risk mitigant in order to ensure against litigation risk. But often, for lots of reasons, consent solicitation it isn't it just isn't practical or feasible certainly for some of the more historical transactions with a long maturity date for example so what we've seen a lot of um, firms doing is having a look to see what other routes can be taken to affect libel transition um, that may 
uh, shall we say, provide an alternative to the consent solicitation pro process. Whilst these obviously uh, introduce uh, more risk from a litigation perspective, they are more practical and more feasible to just get transition done. So what can you do to uh, mitigate risk? What's your process? Uh, it's really important, I think, to assess that question, uh, conduct analysis, um, just, you know, on all of the questions that I've just raised in terms of roles and, uh, you know, contractual, regulatory, fiduciary duties, and try to ensure consistency across the business, making sure that you record your justification for taking a particular, um, you know, a process or basis and engage with, with parties wherever possible in the structure um, in, in hopefully a collaborative way. And certainly where it gets tricky, particularly where you may be having to exercise contractual discretion, seek advice. And on that front, you may be getting advice from lots of different places, legal advice, um, you know, a lot of the accountancy firms, uh, you know, management consultancies, making sure you know which advice is covered by legal privilege is really important in labelling it as such. And finally, all I'll say is don't make a bad situation worse, you know, where there is a potential claim where you can see that coming trying to make sure um, that you can uh, you know, manage how you respond to those. So going back to Doug's point on, on handling complaints and um, you know, very clear communications, consistent across the business, playbooks, training, all of that comes into play here, as well as obviously mitigation of loss. So seeing if, if anything can be done to, to fix uh, something that may have gone wrong. And I'll, I'll end it there, Carol, on a very quick pit stop tour through uh, securitisation risks. Thanks, Lizzie. Um, I do want to pick up one of the questions that we've had through, which is asking whether we think that regulators will make an example of anyone. And I, I have had differing thoughts on this at different at different times. Um, I do think we've got, in the, from a UK perspective, um, precedent of the FCA wanting to be clear with the market what it expects on these sort of large-scale transition projects. That said, when you look at um, how closely the largest organisations are being supervised, I think actually the primary desire is for everyone just to get it right. That said, the FCA is going to be monitoring this carefully. It is very clear in its view that um, going forward, it's going to be, as it describes it, a data regulator. And that isn't just a data-led one. It is actually, um, you know, really being all over uh, the numbers. And so I do think there is going to be focus on firms that perhaps have more synthetic LIBOR being used than anticipated or start to see more complaints coming in than, than you know, perhaps one might have liked. Um, uh, so uh, I suppose one final point before we before we wrap, and that's really to sort of close with with a sort of a positive message. About I, I don't think that um, things are going to be quite as bad uh, as perhaps some had anticipated. I think the um, some of the protections in the contract continuity bill uh, from a, a UK law perspective are very good, but we're certainly not saying this is going to be um, a landscape where there aren't going to be challenges um, going forward.